industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Pharmacist Varun Vora is going to speak with you next and is currently the academic director with the Michigan Poison and Drug Information Center and assistant clinical professor both in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State University. Thank you. Varun Vora, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Great. Thanks, Adam. All right. Welcome, everyone. My talk today is titled Twisted Sister, uh, A Widow's Intrigues. So we'll jump right into it. Uh, I have no personal uh, or financial conflicts. Uh, the objectives of this talk will be describing an infamous series of homicidal poisonings in Michigan, discuss the implicated agent's origins, its uses, pharmacology, toxicology, brief bit about how you'd manage such a toxin, and posit potential theories as to what, to, what led to these poisonings. So women poisoners have gained notoriety throughout history, as we know. So for all you tox history aficionados, uh, you more than likely know of Lucrezia Borgia featured in the middle. So she was the illegitimate daughter of uh, Pope Alexander VI in Renaissance Italy, who was known as a political schemer who reportedly poisoned anyone who was in her or her family's way as a means to kind of influence and alter succession plans. Uh, why this is important is you'll see references to Lucrezia Borgia will be important, a story I'm about to describe, which is unique to Michigan. So taking you back to 120 years ago to Kalkaska County in Michigan. So this is in Northern Michigan, uh, about 25 miles east of Traverse City. It's known mostly for its lumber and farming. It's a rural community of forest and farmland. Actually, it still, still remains so. So we're going to start with Gertrude Murphy. She hadn't been gone long, uh, but already missed her, uh, her three, little three-month-old baby, Ruth. So Gertrude was only 19 years old. She was married to her husband, John. Uh, and most of the time, she did stay home with baby Ruth. But this day, she'd put in some work on a new farmhouse that her and her husband, John, had both purchased uh, on a nice 40-acre plot. So Gertrude assumed that her baby was sleeping when she came back home. She didn't hear any crying. But when she spotted her sister-in-law, Mary McKnight, that Mary looked anguished and explained that when checking on her, baby Ruth must have gotten tangled in the bed sheets and wasn't breathing. This is every parent's worst nightmare. Gertrude flew into hysterics and began screaming. So as Gertrude was naturally hysterical, Mary decided to get Gertrude some medicine to help calm her nerves. But within minutes, Gertrude began to have convulsions, her body contorting. She started foaming at the mouth. And within a matter of minutes, Gertrude was dead, only one hour after baby Ruth had expired. So the date was April 22nd, 1903. And within weeks, the entire state of Michigan and even large portions of the country were captivated by a case and debating, were Gertrude and Ruth Murphy's death just a tragic coincidence or was Mary McKnight a ruthless serial killer? So let's talk about Mary McKnight. Uh, she was trained in nursing and midwifery. So her neighbors often asked her to care for their sick loved ones. Uh, she came from an Irish family who emigrated to northern Michigan from Canada in the late 1800s, and they worked in lumber and farming. Uh, it was a really religious community back then, so people thought the Murphys were cursed. Mary had lost her father, her younger sister, two husbands, all five children, and now add in sister-in-law Gertrude and baby Ruth. Her first husband, James Ambrose, had a successful painting company. They had five kids. They lost three in infancy and two to diphtheria. And shortly after, her husband died under really mysterious circumstances. She then moved in with his business partner, Ernest McKnight, who was married at the time, but soon after Mary moved in, coincidentally, Ernest's wife suddenly fell ill and died. Ernest quickly fell for Mary and they got hitched, but then so happens, Ernest also died of some mysterious illness. So you would think this would leave Mary in pretty dire straits financially, but just so happens that both husbands' lives were insured for $2,000 which would be about the equivalent of 130 to 140,000 today. Uh, and she was also able to sell the land that the second husband Ernest owned. So she was doing okay. 
So now back to the deaths of Gertrude and baby Ruth mentioned from the outset. So no postmortem was ever conducted with Ruth's cause of death listed as spasms and Gertrude's as a fatal epileptic fit brought on by shock of an infant's death. Uh, it was traditional Irish wake, traditional Irish family. Gertrude was in the casket with her baby placed in her arms. So John Murphy, Mary McKnight's brother and Gertrude's husband went from being a father and a husband to a childless widower in a matter of a day. He was naturally devastated and he, stay, he stayed with his sister, Mary McKnight in under her care. So John was a mess. He needed something to help calm him down. And Mary McKnight knew just the thing to help, some medicine. So shortly after John began convulsing, he had severe muscle contractions, his facial muscle pulls were pulled back. Sounds familiar, right? Mary held his hand at the bedside and she was concerned as ever. So a neighbor, Joe Battenfield, he was called over to try and help. And he tried holding some camphor to John's nose. He tried a salt tablet, none of which helped. Uh, to which John, who was actually lucid during the entire time said, it's no good, Joe, I'm dying. John spasmed again and was dead within minutes. So Joe, the neighbor, he was puzzled how an entire branch of a family could be obliterated in the matter of a week and a half. Uh, some people thought it was a lethal contagion, but something didn't quite sit right. And it turned out Joe wasn't the only curious one. Family physician turned coroner, Dr. Pearlie Parasol, it's a great name, thought the same thing. He noticed really bizarre similarities between all three bodies as he was called to the house each time. So rigor mortis sets in after death, but typically disperses after some time. But what he noticed was that Gertrude's muscles stayed stiff even as she was being buried. And he also noted John's body being extremely rigid. And discussions with the undertaker revealed that they actually had to use all their strength to try and straighten the limbs. Something nagged Purcell, but he couldn't quite figure out why. He knew that John suffered from asthma his whole life and his quote unquote attack looked awfully similar to what the family described up until his death. Maybe an acute attack plus the shock and grief finally did him in. John's cause of death was officially listed as shock following an asthma attack. No postmortem was done. Uh, Dr. Parasol thought maybe tetanus, but felt that the onset may have been too rapid. But Purcell then remembered something that he'd seen, that same reaction in death before, back in medical school, when an instructor had the class watch the torturous death of a Newfoundland dog who had been poisoned for demonstration purposes. And just days after John's death, Mary brought in documentation showing that John owed her $600 since she lent him money to buy that 40-acre plot. Trouble was that the clerk who actually helped draft that mortgage distinctly remember the amount being 200, not 600, and that the document had clearly been altered. So Mary said she arranged this with John previously, but didn't have time to officially record the change. It turns out Mary had also inquired about John's life insurance status. It's like Dateline, sort of pioneer version. So this sequence combined with Dr. Parasol's concerns prompted the county sheriff and the prosecutor to exhume John's body. So Mary was furious at this prospect of John's body being exhumed because she stated that the one thing that he told her before he died was, don't you ever let them dig me up, which is convenient. Suddenly, the lead prosecutor remembered a case from law school of a husband poisoning his wife, and her body was found with similar signs to the Murphy family, and the husband tried to obstruct an autopsy. This made the men move even faster in wanting to exhume John's body and have his organs tested by a toxicologist in Ann Arbor. And the tox reports were similar for all three bodies. And you all probably guessed it, it's strychnine. Uh, from the seeds of the plant uh, from the strychnose genus, uh, we mostly hear about strychnose noxvomica. And strychnine was routinely sold as a rodenticide in the past and has was used medicinally actually in small doses. It was sold as a nerve tonic for headaches, uh, as a stimulant. It was actually one of the first quote unquote athletic performance enhancers and could easily be found in things like Easton syrup, which was quinine mixed with strychnine. And with Michigan farming being a huge part of the state's economy, rodenticides were widely available. 
And lethal doses vary, been found with as little as five milligrams, or usually range from 50 to 100. And over five-sixths of a grain, and a grain being about 65 milligrams, five-sixths of a grain, so over 50 milligram, was actually found in John's stomach. And for reference, the regular medicinal dose back then was one-thirteenth to one-sixteenth of a grain. It's not exactly the most quiet poison in terms of taste, described as very bitter, which is often why it'd be masked with another substance to avoid raising suspicion. Things like jam, tea, coffee, and soup. So strychnine has been called a crazy com complex piece of molecular architecture. It's been invoked in mainstream literature. If anyone's read H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, comments on it. Uh, its mechanism, its competitive antagonist at the glycine receptor and inhibitory neurotransmitter uh, in the postsynaptic neurons of the spinal cord. This leads to increased motor neuron excitability, increased muscle activity, and then toxicity leads to what we observe with the Murphys, severe cramps, hyperreflexia, the epistatonus, rhesus sardonicus, painful diffuse muscle contractions. And treatment typically is focused on stopping that motor activity uh, with benzos, phenobar, propofol, and eventually if needed, non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. And airway control is paramount too, watching for respiratory compromise secondary to respiratory muscle spasms. So Mary was arrested shortly after, and when questioned, she claimed that the only strychnine in the house was in the cellar mixed with cornmeal to kill rodents that she had put there last winter. The trouble was that neighbor, that Joe Battenfield, revealed that Mary had actually requested him to purchase five cents worth of strychnine from a local drugstore just days before John's death. And when presented with this information, Mary changed her story and said she must have mixed up the dates and mixed the strychnine and cornmeal just a few days prior to John's death, not last winter. Again, convenient. Mary was held in isolation in what they used to call a birdcage uh, for prolonged periods of time, uh, which would eventually become an important angle for the defense in evaluating her sanity. Independent interviews with friends, relatives, former neighbors uncovered a weird trail of suspicious deaths. So the prosecution actually learned that those who had died were either directly in Mary's care or close to her, a close loved one, and they were all found with the same findings. So convulsions, severe spasms, arching at the back, the rice of sardonicus. After poring over death records of the people who had been in Mary's care, uh, historians placed her potential body count at around 12. So that's two husbands, James and Ernest, John, Gertrude, and Ruth Murphy, sister Sarah, niece Eliza, and some non-relatives and family friends. But the prosecution knew better than to draw conclusions based solely on interviews and eyewitness testimony. But all the deaths shared similarities that were way too hard to dismiss as just sheer coincidence. So Mary insisted she never meant any harm and admitted that she did mix strychnine with quinine into capsules to help soothe Gertrude and John's pain. This didn't add up. I mean, one capsule with a medicinal dose of strychnine would not have been enough to kill either Gertrude or John Murphy, especially based on the amount found in John's postmortem. She also initially claimed that nothing was given to the baby, but then with strychnine also being found in the baby, she then changed her story and said she meant to give the baby another medicine and must have grabbed the wrong medicine and claimed it was all a big misunderstanding and accident. Trouble was that no quinine was actually found anywhere in the bodies. So the prosecutor could believe she accidentally overdosed one, but not all three. And it was strychnine that killed the three Murphys. Mary just admitted to giving it to them as well. And she just confessed to a triple murder, kind of in a roundabout way, but no one else was there to witness this statement to the prosecutor. So the prosecutor asked if she'd be willing to put this in pen to paper and sign it. But what the prosecutor failed to do was mention Mary's explanation about the mix-up of the drug packages for the death of baby Ruth Murphy. So it suggested that she actually willfully gave her poison. And this, event, this would eventually play a major role in the tone of the subsequent media coverage and public's perception of Mary McKnight, who was a middle-aged widow who was about to become a nationwide news sensation. 
So Mary was a fixture on front pages across the state, Detroit Free Press, even headlines ran nationally in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And remember Lucrezia Borgia, the political poisoner from Renaissance Italy, Mary McKnight was actually given the moniker, the Michigan Borgia. She technically never admitted to murder, but reporters followed that prosecutors released alleged confession statement and condemned her as a triple murderess anyway. Things started spiraling down quickly for Mary. Her reaction to the news of her alleged confession was denying that she made any statement at all. She, this may have been a potential strategy from the defense as well, of again, raising issue of her sanity, saying that she could not have been held responsible because of her deteriorating mental state and isolation, as well as grieving the loss of her family or her loved ones. She then claimed she had been using strychnine for years. So it's plausible that she may have developed some physiological tolerance that would have been potent or lethal for naive individuals like John Murphy. She then went on about having wanted to commit suicide for years and that her intent was truly to help the Murphys, but the loaded capsules that were given to them were too potent and initially intended for her. The prosecution saw this as a lame attempt to undo her statements. It was a clever move to cast out on premeditation. The defense could claim that Mary accidentally fed John Murphy a massive dose from the loaded capsule intended for herself. It could also be used as a prelude to her insanity plea. So with the headlines and notoriety, Mary already seemed guilty by the court of public opinion. The defense team didn't think she'd get a fair trial and were able to move the case to a nearby county with the biggest city being Cadillac. Unfortunately, this was kind of a lateral move since Cadillac had large newspapers which covered this case in great detail. Jurors deliberated with motive when they started, five voted to acquit because, quote, she just didn't seem like a killer, end quote. And when Mary McKnight was taken into custody, initially she was described as a physically healthy woman, even plump. Uh, in the weeks, I guess that was a compliment. In the weeks it took before going to trial, she lost a bunch of weight uh, because she eventually stopped eating. She lost about 40 pounds and her mental state took a toll as well. Again, bringing into her question, into question about the legitimacy of the alleged confession statement, which could have been based on periodic coherent snippets and uh, it could have been coerced, the defense alleged. But the evidence was too compelling, and the jury reached a consensus and found Mary McKnight guilty of murder by poison. Her defense worked to portray, again, her as mentally unstable, but the jury didn't buy it enough at least to change the conviction, and she was sentenced to life in prison. She served 18 years, and the state parole board decided Mary had served enough, and in June 1920, she was released from the Detroit House of Corrections. And the world was a vastly different place than you can imagine in 1920s Detroit. Cars were something that Mary rarely saw in 1903, but the, by the time she was released, Henry Ford had ramped up production in Detroit and throughout Michigan, and now cars were everywhere. And she died within a few years of her release, but historians have never been comfortable with one last thing. Why? No motive was ever established, so we've been left to wonder. There have been several theories which have been posited, which include the being the saint, using the anguish of those in her care, but accidentally overdosing them in the process. But she was a nurse and the amount found in the bodies didn't make sense. There was the theory of twisted envy, some sort of morbid envy for the family that she could never have. And there was the mercenary motive, which is the, what the prosecution put forward of her collecting the money from husbands and the land, taking out John Murphy and his heir to inherit their land and, and funds. There's also the malignant hero. So this is a, essentially a caregiver who manufactures illnesses and craves the attention they get by saving the sick and being considered a hero. But there was no evidence that she ever tried to save any of these people. Could she have been a sadist and sociopath with a God complex, uh, feeling the power that she had with those under her care and sometimes taking pleasure in taking lives? And the weirdest one of them all is that Mary loved funerals. She had this black defeta dress, which she always wore to nice or formal occasions. 
Irish wakes were a big deal back then, a really large event, and women played a significant role. So people thought that with no immediate family of her own, she just wanted to belong and produced reasons for producing funerals. Nonetheless, we're only left to speculate, but references to this case still pop up from time to time in Michigan as one of the first to truly stun the state in terms of its notoriety and the attention that it gained. And Mary McKnight is now known as the Strict Nine Saints.